Hi again, everyone. This is Mark Lipsessian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's in New York, and I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, the other co-director of the Center, Professor Mark DiGirolami, for an episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on Apple iTunes, also on Android and Spotify and other streaming platforms, and on our website, Law and Religion Forum, that's one word, lawandreligionforum.org. Well, I'm very excited about today's episode. Uh, today's episode is going to be an interview with the person I just mentioned a second ago, uh, Mark DiGirolami, who is the other co-director of our center. And I'm going to interview Mark today about his new article, which is, I guess, not yet out, but coming out soon, called Traditionalism Rising, which is, I must say, and I, I, I put aside all bias in saying this, this is truly a fantastic article. Cool. And that's I very think, nice for you to say, Mark. Thank and, you. And I think I really, I, I really urge listeners to to read it because it really is one of these articles that is is kind of reconfiguring the field in in, in interesting ways, and uh, it's really something that everybody I think who's interested in constitutional law should read. Um, so welcome, Mark. Welcome as a guest this time. Thank you very much. And 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 this is this is a nice sort of turnaround. Is uh, turnabout is fair play. We. We had a, a discussion about your article, and now one of mine. We thought that we would would bring to listeners uh, a little something about our own work that we've been that we've been doing that is that is uh, adjacent to and and involves some of the law and religion issues that we normally talk about, but but uh, is a little bit of something else. Great. Okay, Mark. So um, let's begin. So the title of your your piece is "Traditionalism Rising," <laughs> which which sounds very exciting. And um, um, your basic argument is in the paper that um, in doctrinal areas as, as diverse as the Due Process Clause, the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the Second Amendment, and, and others, that traditionalism has become the method of constitutional adjudication. And you say it's mostly conservative justices who have, who have endorsed this, but not uniformly. You say the progressive justices have embraced this method too, so I guess the first question uh, for today is, what is traditionalism in your view? What is the constitutional method that you claim is now taking off at the Supreme Court? Okay, great. Well, so I think, um, and just as a, a little bit of background, you know, this is a project, a general project that I've been working on um, over the last few years in a number of different papers. And so this latest paper is sort of the kind of culmination of some of these other projects. Uh, involving what I've described as traditionalism, and, and I should say also connected to some of our center projects um, uh, involving the tradition project, which is something that we've really been um, considering thinking about the role and value of tradition in law, politics, culture, and a number of areas since 2016. So this is a kind of a long-term project that's been gestating, and this and this latest paper is 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 the latest effort there. So when I say traditionalism uh, in, in constitutional law, I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to identify, as you say, a method that the court is using now, but actually that it has long used in a variety of areas. The, the first paper that I wrote about three years ago concerned traditionalism across all of the domains of constitutional law, separation of powers issues, um, areas, areas that you would Fourth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, and so on. Um, the method is really defined by what I would call three key features. 
Um, the first feature is a focus on practices, concrete practices as determining the meaning of constitutional provisions. So for example, in the First Amendment, let's say in the speech context, we could think about the practice of pamphleteering, right? The, that's a practice that has uh, that has uh, that, that people have participated in and that has been regulated in a variety of ways. And so these practices, and I call them practices both of regulation, and I'm interested not only in federal regulation, but in state and local regulation, but also of popular and cultural import. So practices that, that people have engaged in, again, individually and in groups um, that have informed, that I claim have informed the meaning of, of uh, various constitutional provisions. Right, Mark, but, but you're not talking, as I understand it, about judicial practice here. You're not talking about what, what common law lawyers would think of as, as precedent, as that kind of practice, correct? That's correct. Uh, I'm not talking about judicial practices, or at least um, I'm not talking about a kind of common law constitutionalism. I mean, it was, that is to say, as that project has developed in the 20th century. Um, it was once the case, and this is a very powerful conception of the common law, that the common law was supposed to in many ways reflect uh, and, and regulate and kind of organize common practices in the sense that I'm talking about. Um, uh, Whatever one might say about that project, I think that the, that the present notion of what common law judging is all about is, is quite different than that and really concerns judicial law, judicial creation of the law. Um, instead, what I'm interested in is um, political and cultural practices, and I'm interested in them in a diffuse way. I want to get a sort of a sense of or survey the uh, the practices in this sense of the country in various states and localities and so on to see if we can kind of assemble a sense of what, again, political and cultural practice look like. So that's the first feature, a focus on practices. The second feature of, the, of traditionalism concerns what I call the issue of endurance. Um, and endurance um, is itself composed of a number of different sub-elements. One of those is age. A simple question, how old is this practice? How far back does it go? Um, a second kind of feature is continuity, the continuity of the practice. Um, that is to say, over time, um, uh, how, how, sort of, how long has it, has it gone on uh, in either the same form or in somewhat altered form? But in any event, how, how, um, what can we say with respect to the sort of duration and continuity of the practice uh, uh, in, in those terms, right? Sequentially, in terms of years, how long has it lasted? Um, and then the third feature uh, concerns something that I call density. Um, that is, how broadly was the practice adopted? You know, since I'm interested in a sort of a diffuse examination of the practices, can we trace the practice across uh, many, many different areas um, to get a sense of how how um, how broadly it was adopted, so th that's really the second feature. The third and final feature um, is the issue of the presumptive authority of practices. So um, what I say in in this piece a little bit, but especially in other pieces, um, is that um, we can uh, looking at these first two components, we can get a sense for um, 
what the meaning, we can get a sort of sense of information about what the meaning of various constitutional provisions is, but it's not to say that that sense or that determination of meaning is conclusive. There will be situations in which, for a variety of reasons, including uh, either bad faith or mistake uh, or some sort of extremely overpowering and broadly accepted uh, moral justification or moral reason, the, the tradition, what I call the tradition of practice, can be overridden. So th those are really the three, the three elements. You know, Mark, as you described it, it sounds to me a bit like the concept of customary international law, which is a, which is a public international law concept, which talks about um, practices that states engage in from a sense of legal obligation. Now, you don't, you don't talk about that last part very much, that, that people are engaging in these practices because they think that they are legal obligations, but otherwise it strikes me as similar to that. Okay, so um, it's very hard to follow this without an example, so let's make this concrete. In your paper, you say that uh, the best example of traditionalism rising is in the Second Amendment context, but we're a law and religion center, so maybe just a quick example, if you could, from the religion clause context of where you see this method um, presently. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, probably the best example is actually from a case uh, prior to this term. Uh, and that case uh, was called Town of Greece versus Galloway involving the issue of legislative prayer, the extent to which uh, legislative prayer, which is to say, these prayers that are held by legislative bodies generally to inaugurate or kick off a, a legislative session um, are um, uh, constitutional and, and, and conform with the Establishment Clause. And so if you think about various ways to analyze that question, you know, you, you could think about it in a kind of what I call in the paper a principled way. You could say, well, we have this principle of separation of church and state. Um, and, uh, and as a result, uh, we can reason downward from that principle to find that this particular practice really violates that principle. And so irrespective of what was done historically or what people may have thought, you know, they just, let's say, didn't see as clearly as we do uh, or, or missed it or something like that, what the principle requires. So that would be one, one kind of approach. Um, my approach is somewhat like the inverse of that approach. Um, my approach is to say, um, well, the first thing that we need to think about is um, did or did not people at the time of ratification engage in this practice? Um, because what we want to know, again, if we're determining, so there is a kind of a connection here that we'll talk about in a little bit with respect to what we'll call what, what is called originalism. But if we want to determine the meaning of the words of the establishment clause, um, an important determinant of that meaning is going to be what people actually did. Um, because as a general matter, um, what we mean and what we do tend to line up. They tend, they tend to go together. Not always, um, but, but as a presumptive matter at least. So, so we look to evidence, for example, about um, the practice of legislative prayer in the colonies, or we look to evidence of legislative practices of legislative prayer in the first Congress or we look to practices of legislative prayer just after ratification. So a kind of a constrained time frame gives us our first indication about whether the practice, um, this particular practice does or doesn't line up with uh, a law respecting an establishment of religion. But we don't stop there. We actually want to look before, well before, and then well after, because the more evidence of a particular's practice, practice's existence 
and continuity and density, the greater confidence we can have that that practice, in fact, is or is not considered to be part of the meaning of, of the text. Um, and so um, we can almost think of it in the, the metaphor that I use in the paper, like a ski slope. Um, what we want, if for those of us who are, for those of you listeners who are skiing or skiers out there, what you want is the best kind of skiing is a long slope that is dense and continuous throughout. You want it, you don't want it to be sort of, uh, you know, sort of marked by giant patches of bare ground. You don't want it to be icy. You want it to be smooth. Um, and so you sort of think about this along a sliding scale. The more of that kind of evidence that one has, the more confident that one can be um, that, that, um, that, the, that the practice uh, 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 either fits or does not fit within the meaning of the text. And I should say one, one other thing, and that is um, in determining whether the particular practice under review fits within the tradition, it is permissible on my view to think about, and the way that I'd put this is sort of mid-level, mid-level ideas uh, about what it is that this practice is for in the first place, right? So why, why did people engage in legislative prayer? To see whether, if we can derive sort of um, uh, ideas, justifications, and so on for that practice, whether the new thing that we're looking at fits in within this older thing, or is instead something different from it. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And I'm glad I'm glad you actually mentioned originalism. I was going to ask about that, but you, you kind of explained that already, that listeners should understand that from your perspective, and I, I imagine also from the perspective of originalists, your your theory is not originalism because it is it doesn't just freeze something at a moment in time. Uh, it's not positivist in the way that that originalism is. Now, some of this, I understand listeners, is inside baseball for con law scholars, but I do think, you know, I should mention that Mark in his paper um, discusses the differences between his approach and, and originalism. So, Mark, as you point out in your paper, most scholars today would find your approach very off-putting. So how in this, at this particular moment in American constitutional history, um, how do you justify a traditionalist approach? What, what are the best arguments in favor of it? Yeah, and I, I think you're right about that, Mark. You know, it's, it's, it's probably not going to be a uh, and at least not an immediately appealing argument, uh, our uh, method of interpretation for, for many constitutional scholars. Yes, you're, you're speaking for posterity. I'm speaking for posterity, and, and I'm hoping to convince uh, at least some people that, that there's something worthwhile here. You know, there's sort of two features of this. One, I'm just trying to describe what the court is doing, right? I think that this is a real a new move. And the second thing is, as you say, I'm trying to offer at least some justifications. And, and there, I think, you know, one can justify a theory of interpretation at a number of different levels. Um, one, one could justify it as, as you, you mentioned the word positivist, right? And, and in some ways, um, I can make those arguments about traditionalism. In fact, I can claim, and I think with increasing credibility, that um, traditionalism is our law of, con of the Constitution right now. It, it really seems to be what um, you, you can see it in a number of different areas. It's what exists, right? The sort of positive law of the Constitution is in many ways traditionalist. Um, uh, uh, 
Well, yes, I was going to say that that you know when I said positivist, maybe I meant textualist. It's not it's not the sense that the law is what the what the supreme lawgiver, the legislator, has put down in black and white. That that's what I meant by positive. Okay, well, not, not not in the sense that you're not describing what exists, but this other theory of law. That's that's certainly possible, right? Um, an, an, another way to defend or justify traditionalism. Um, is by is by arguing that for a people like ours in a democratic republic, it is a particularly appropriate kind of method. And in a different paper, not the one that you read, I call this a, a populist democratic justification for originalism, because you might think in a democratic republic, um, the laws gain uh, legitimacy because people believe that they have had a hand in, in, in making them either a direct hand or an indirect hand. And, and of course, people's traditions and practices are, are reflective of, oftentimes I claim, um, such an understanding of what the law is and what it ought to be. So that's a second possible sort of, how to put it, level of justification. Um, so it seems to me, you know, I'm over my head here. You do jurisprudence, not me, but it seems like the sort of the German school, right? This is Savigny, which talks about that the law is legitimate to the extent that it comports with the traditions of the people. Correct. That's right. That so that would be that would be another kind of justification. A third kind of justification, which which actually is the kind that I engage in in this paper, is the sort of it's the it's the broadest, I think, and and that justification is. Um, is there what reason is there for any legal system uh, to be traditionalist? Um, not just necessarily ours as a matter of positive law or as a matter of democratic theory, but period at all. And and there I think, and in the paper I offer three possibilities. Um, one is based on the idea that um, trying trying to understand why it is that people. Um, generally regret the loss of certain kinds of phenomena in our world and why they don't regret other kinds of loss. Um, so they regret, for example, the loss of, let's say, you know, that old moth-eaten easy chair, or they regret the loss of uh, certain practices, right, that they engage in certain, let's say, you know, family dinners, right, or, or other kinds of social, pra- but they don't regret necessarily the loss of you know the the death of uh, uh, stars in distant in distant galaxies, right? They don't regret the loss um, of particular ideas that they've held when they've changed their mind. And so I try to say, well, how do we explain this? And 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 there I've got a an idea that um, you know we we regret it. We regret it when social practices that have constituted our lives in various ways. Um, die out oftentimes. And, and the example that I give is, you know, if we, if we have the sense that um, our practices would die with us when we died, um, we would value very, very different things in our lives because we hope and expect oftentimes, and again, presumptively, that our practices will endure beyond our death. And if that's true, if that's true, then it's likely that our predecessors thought the same thing. Um, And so that, again, is what I call a sort of desiderative uh, justification for traditionalism. So that's one kind of justification. I have a couple of other ones that I could could, uh, bore you with uh, 
uh, which are in some ways are, are deeper justifications, Mark. But I don't know if you have questions about that one. Well, no, I mean, I, I thank you, Mark. I take what you're saying here. I mean, I, it often occurs to me that, you know, so our, our, the generation of students coming up now, everyone says famously, are not into institutions. They're not into traditions at all. And I think institutions and traditions go together. Um, but, you know, they're interested in you know, the tradition of, of, of craft brewing. We think tradition is good with respect to certain kinds of things, you know. Um, but not others. And it's interesting to, to ask why that is so. I mean, why do people like the moth-eaten chair? And by the way, anyone who's been to Mark's office will understand the reference there. Personally, I would not at all miss the, miss the moth-eaten chair if it goes. <laughs> but, you know, some people, uh, some people care about those things, no others. It's interesting to think about that. Um, in the interest of time, Mark, I wanna, do want to raise one other issue that our listeners should know about, and that is your paper raises a number of possible criticisms of traditionalism um, involving you know, the appropriate level of generality and so forth. But in the interest of time, let's just focus on one of the objections. And here's what, here's what it is. Isn't traditionalism, like originalism before it, and you distance yourself from originalism, but, but isn't traditionalism simply a vehicle for achieving politically conservative or retrograde results? And isn't the court's embrace of traditionalism now simply a vehicle for that? Isn't this simply isn't this simply a mechanism for the court to reach politically conservative results that it wants to to reach? So, how would you answer that objection? Yeah, it's a, it's a good objection, and it's certainly one that that would be voiced by uh, uh, folks who um, immediately see the sort of political valences of any method. And and I, you know, in my in my um, it's funny in my classes in constitutional law, Mark, uh, as well as I, I also teach tort law. It's interesting to me that students immediately can see the the political valences of constitutional law. That it, it's all it's all law. Uh, sorry, it's all politics uh, with respect to con law. But they're they're not so uh, quick to see the deep political uh, uh, valences of something like tort law. Um, uh, and so I spend a lot of my time trying to uh, elicit those those uh, uh, connections in tort law and a lot of time trying to sort of uh, show how law-like the Constitution can be. Yeah, which is just, just to interrupt, is very interesting because, of course, 50, 60, 70 years ago, it would have been just the opposite. The realists were very focused on private law, on changing that, and the great sort of progressive legal decisions from California, whatever, were in products liability and and various kinds of you know unconscionability and so on. So it's interesting. That's that's the topic maybe for another podcast. I agree. Why is that? I agree. Why is that switched? We should do another one on, on, on that issue. But I guess I would say, of course, it's true that there are um, political valences to every method, um, which is not the same as to say that a method is reducible to its politics. I think that the valences of traditionalism are custodial and preservative. And so to that extent, um, uh, the, the, the method will oftentimes result in what is conventionally regarded as a conservative outcome, but not always, not always. And I think here is sort of a connection to one of the other justifications. Um, it's my view that, that the practices that we engage in, again, presumptively, not all of them, but the practices that we engage in, we engage in because they lead to certain kinds of virtues of human behavior. So there's a virtue ethical component to my theory. Um, we do the things that we do politically, culturally, as practices that endure very often because engaging in those practices over time 
leads us to certain kinds of qualities of character. Um, and those qualities of character, I think, are do not necessarily have any political, ideological valence one way or another. I think about something like pamphleteering, for example, right, which I had mentioned before. Well, um, pamphleteering uh, does not necessarily have any political valence one way or, or another. You could be the little guy, you can be someone who is in the minority and engage in that practice and evince certain kinds of political virtues and have those virtues and those practices protected by the court against, let's say, regulation, government regulation that is new, that is trying to encroach on that practice. And you would have a very, very, um, uh, it would not be easy to identify exactly where the politics of such a, uh, of such a conflict would lie. In fact, I would say um, that anybody who is, um, uh, anyone who is interested or concerned about the losses, the loss of valuable ways of doing and being across, across the ideological spectrum is going to find something in this method uh, that is appealing to them. Uh, and so, and, and that might very well be, at least in some circumstances, uh, you know, uh, what at least at one time was considered a progressive, perhaps earlier in the 20th century, more than now. But but I do think you could think of the old left, let's say, as finding some of the some of the methods uh, that I discuss appealing in their own way. Well, that is very interesting, and you know there is there is some movement out there to unite the the kind of old right and the old left in some ways, uh, um, or maybe it's the new right and the old left. I don't know. Uh, we'll see if that fusion can work any more than other attempts at fusion have worked, but it's a very interesting thought. Okay, Mark, well, we'll leave it there, I guess, but I do want to encourage listeners really to read the paper because this is a paper that will help you reconceptualize and rethink what American constitutional law is about. And whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, it's, it's extremely suggestive of ideas and really, really worth the time. So we'll leave it there. Uh, and until next time, this has been another episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, but also on streaming sites like Apple iTunes and Spotify and Android and lots of others. See you next time. <laughs>